Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. If I were to ask you to tell me a story of the Old Testament strongman Samson, you could tell me about his haircut, no doubt. You could tell me about his blinding. You could tell me about his leaning against the pillar and the temple of Dagon and pushing it over. But there's a story of Samson that is uh, at least as interesting as all of these. And it would be one that would especially stick in your mind if you happen to be a fox instead of a human. Because Samson does something pretty strange and outrageous with a bunch of foxes one day to get revenge on the Philistines. Judges chapter 15, Samson rounds up a flock of foxes and then he takes torches and he ties the the tails of two foxes together with a torch in between them. He does this with all the foxes and then he sets the torches on fire and lets the foxes go. And these foxes run with their flaming tails, carrying those torches into the fields of the Philistines. The Bible says, so Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took torches, and he turned them tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails. When he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stacked grain and standing grain, as well as the olive orchards. Children, I can tell you're interested in this because you're looking at me. Don't get any ideas. If you see any foxes this afternoon, leave them alone. Don't catch them on fire. Don't send them into the fields. But it is interesting that Samson does this. It's interesting, too, the number of foxes that he does it with. It's 300 foxes, and that's a number that should uh, be resonant. Right? 300, that's a special number. You're thinking to yourself, well, of course it's a special number, Pastor Mark. That's the number of Spartans who fought at Thermopylae, as we all know. True, but let me point out that the 300 Spartans who fought at Thermopylae lost their battle. The 300 whom Gideon raised up as an army to the Lord in Judges chapter 7, won the victory that they went out to fight. It's interesting that 300 foxes are set loose in this battle, that this is a battle for the harvest, as it were, where the flames consume the harvest and spread throughout the Philistine grain. Well, the reason that I've been thinking about Samson's exploits is this line here in Zechariah 12, which suggests that the people of God will serve a similar purpose for God that those foxes did for Samson. If you look in our list of on that days in our text, you'll see one of them on that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves. And as you read that, especially as you read it in kind of a long list of other metaphors, it might be lost on you what the significance of these words are. What, what is a burning pot in the midst of wood good for? Well, quite literally, what he's saying is, I will make my people into fire starters. Like, I will make my people into this combustible, flaming thing 
that is then tossed into the wood that is cast among the sheaves in order to devour them to the right and to the left and all the surrounding peoples. What a striking image that is. That God will take his people, his flock, that we've been seeing vision after vision addressed to, and he will turn them into a flock of fire starters. That he will kindle a flame among them and then send them out into the world to do battle, as it were, a spiritual battle, and they will carry that flame with them, and it will consume all that is around them. If you are in Christ, if you are God's people, then God has called you to be a flock of fire starters in this way. And in this prophecy, we see what God intends to do, not just for us, but through us in the days that are coming. In the first section of this chapter, in that first set of prophecies, they all center around a siege of Jerusalem, a great battle that is going to be fought. As we consider the various images, one on top of another, that Zechariah reveals to us, we begin to learn something about this battle. We see that God's people will be under siege, that we should expect it but that it is precisely this opposition that God will use to bring about victory. So yes, there will be a siege. Yes, there will be a struggle. There will be battle. But it is exactly this battle, this attack, that God will use to bring about victory. If you look at the various images that are present in this siege, they're kind of amazing. Behold, I'm about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah, a cup of staggering. In other words, imagine a wine cup, a chalice filled with wine that people see and it's desirable to them. And they're like, yeah, I'll have some of that. And so they go to take the cup and to drink from it. But as they overwhelmed by it, they are intoxicated by it. It's too much for them. They cannot handle it. What they've taken is too great for their lips. And so they stagger, they reel out of control as a result. God says, I will make Jerusalem like that, a cup. Everyone desires to snatch, to take for himself, but it will prove too powerful for them and they will reel, they will stagger. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. Once again, the peoples will will rush forward to try to lift this stone. But God says, all who lift it will surely hurt themselves. And all the nations of the earth will gather against it. So once again, we see everyone turning on this stone, on this city, on Jerusalem. But it proves so heavy that all who lift it strain. They hurt themselves when they try to do it. He goes on to talk about uh, panicked horses. The idea of the, the horses being panicked and their riders driven to madness, this is an army, an army of cavalry, and God is saying that I will confuse the strength of your enemies, that I will panic their horses, I will blind their horses, I will drive their riders crazy, they won't be able to overcome you, but don't worry, in the midst of all this confusion, in the midst of all this blindness, my eyes will stay open, I will keep watch, I will take care of things, so that everyone who sees it will testify to the strength that you have in me. So once again, a promise, there will be battle, 
but in that battle, I will fight for you and you will prevail. And then we get to the fire starters. On that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves. And they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. The Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David, the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem, may not surpass that of Judah. So now not only defensive, but an offensive theme here, that God will use his people to burn up, to consume all those who come against them. But remember, as we think about that action, that battle, remember, we've already seen this, but in prophecy, these images of warfare, of conflict, of of strife and destruction are often used to describe things that when Christ actually does them are hopeful and wonderful and beautiful. The battle that's being described here is being described in terms of physical warfare But in fact, a spiritual battle, a spiritual warfare is in view. And when Jesus comes and brings victory, his is not a victory of destruction. It's a victory of restoration. So all these images in their fulfillment turn out to be quite glorious. It's interesting to see that on that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David. The mighty King David, a great hero, the weakest of us, the least equipped, will be mighty in that day through the power of the Lord. And what he will do through his people lifts them up and elevates them so that we get a series of images here. The glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David and the house of David shall be like God like the angel of the Lord going before them. We see that in this future struggle, there is a glorification of God's people that will take place as well. And finally, on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. God fights for us. And yes, we will be under siege, but everyone who comes against us, God will vanquish. So when you consider all of these Prophetic images and their meaning, a lot of questions emerge. But if you step back and and look for the big picture and ask yourself, what does it all mean? There's two things that you need to hold on to. First, trouble is coming. Here we get a prophecy of the future. Zechariah 11, we oriented ourselves on a timeline where we were seeing uh, the Romans coming and kind of allusions to the destruction of the temple. So now we find ourselves after this, has taken place, and we're told that in the future, trouble will come. There will be conflict. The world will lay siege to the church. And it's important that you keep this in mind so that you understand that when this happens, when you experience trouble, when the world comes against you, when you feel like you're under attack and under siege, you don't make the mistake of thinking that because this is happening, something has gone wrong. That this is not the way it was supposed to be. That your life in Christ was not supposed to be a life of trouble and a life of conflict. Because clearly, God, through the prophets, is saying, yes, it is. Yes, trouble is coming. Trouble is coming for you. You will be surrounded. The nations will come against you. You should expect this. It shouldn't surprise you. 
in a more uh, modern parlance, this isn't a bug, it's a feature. This doesn't mean something's gone wrong. This means something has gone right. When you see the trouble coming, you know the prophecy is being fulfilled. What God said would happen is indeed happening. You have been called to this struggle, an antithetical struggle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. The good news is that God will bring victory in this struggle. So God tells us not only that there will be a fight, but he tells us how it will end. He gives us comfort and assurance that in this struggle, as impossible as the odds may seem, he will fight for us, not only for us, but through us. The two points here, inside baseball, let's say, in interpretation of prophecy that I want us to spend just a moment thinking about, one of them is the significance of that phrase, on that day. You see it in the text repeated over and over again. On that day, this will happen. On that day, that will happen. And the natural question to ask is, what day is that? What is the day that's being spoken of? What is the setting for these events? Well, the short answer is that the timing of these events is what we might call eschatological time or end times. We're projecting into the future. We're looking at what's going to happen in the last age. But when I say that, you have to remember that from Zechariah's perspective, that the last days, the end times, like, like it's where we're living now. Like for him, the end times, the final age is an age that begins with the coming of Christ. It's an age that includes Pentecost, the pouring out of the Spirit, but it also includes Christ's second coming and judgment and the glorification of his people. Remember, we said this before, that prophetically, it's as if we're standing at the top of a high building on the observation deck looking out, and events that are actually very far apart seem compressed and close. So when Zechariah looks forward and he sees all this stuff happening, it all seems to be one thing. But standing where we're standing now, we can look back at the beginning of his last days, and we look forward to the, like, the coming of the what we might call the ending of the last days, and recognize that there's much more to this than you would have realized in Zechariah's time. Another way of putting this is that when we talk about the already and the not yet, we talk about the kingdom and we say, you know, this is what Christ has already done. This is what he has not yet done. For Zechariah, the already and the not yet are all not yet. All of it is not yet together. And so as he prophesies about this future, it's not strange that we see him referring to things that that later seem to be separate and separated by a lot of time as if they were closer together. So you read about a siege of Jerusalem and you ask yourself, what siege are we talking about here? And one answer you could say to yourself is the, the Roman siege of Jerusalem that resulted in the destruction of the temple, which was just rebuilt in Zechariah's day. That would make perfect sense. But in the last chapter, we already saw kind of a reference to that taking place, to those Roman armies and the path that they traveled, which suggests that what's happening here is farther in time to that. And you say that's fine, because won't there be like a final climactic battle, uh, a battle mentioned in the book of Revelation, uh, Armageddon, which sounds a lot like a word that's in our text, uh, Megiddo. So maybe it's talking about that. That could be what's going on here. But of course, if you look at your text, 
you'll see this reference to Megiddo is not future tense, it's past tense. It's something that happened there a long time ago. So what are we to make of the timing of these events? Add to that the fact that as our passage continues, we start seeing references to mourning and the work of Christ's atonement and its consequences, which orient us more in the territory of Isaiah's suffering servants. Make us think about Christ's work and its consequences, what follows from it. I'm going to suggest to you that the best way to see the events of this chapter is to see them spiritually, not physically. To understand that what's being spoken of here is the church of Jesus Christ, a church that consists of both Jews and Gentiles. And that this is a vision of the history of God's working in that church that is played out for us over the course of millennia, but is glimpsed by Zechariah, as it were, in a moment in a series of images which the world attempts to overcome the church, in which Jerusalem and Judah are distinguished in a way that in the New Testament we will see a distinguishing between uh, Jew and Gentile. We're made one in the kingdom of God, and yet there is still a consideration towards ethnic Jews that remains. That is the, the, the world that we're operating in in Zechariah chapter 12. And so what we're seeing here is, as it were, a promissory note that God is making to his people. This is a vision of the triumph of the church in this last age. That whatever trouble you endure, however much pressure you feel from the world around you, no matter how dark things get, you can be assured that God will fight with you and through you, and that that very attack, that the assault upon God's people itself will be the means of overcoming the world. It is as the world seeks to destroy what God is doing, that God uses that assault to achieve his victory. There's one other thing I want you to take into account, which is how this oracle begins. The very beginning, the oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel, thus declares the Lord who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. That's preamble. That's introductory to what comes afterwards. But it is a significant preamble because it demonstrates to us that the whole work of redemption that we glimpse through this set of images is one that God grounds in the fact of creation. Like he's announcing who he is. He's saying, the God who is proclaiming these things, let me remind you who he is. And as he orients you, how you should think about these things, what he reminds you of is that he is the one who stretched out the heavens. He is the one who founded the earth. He is the one who formed your spirit within you. So he testifies here to his creativity, to his power, to his glory, and says, like, the goodness of everything I made, the goodness of everything that I've done in the past, take that as a kind of testimony that what I'm about to tell you is true and solid, and it will come to pass. As real as the world that I made is, as real as you are, that's how real the victory is that I proclaim to you is. 
But the question is the nature of that victory. And as I said, we have to be careful when we read these images not to take the metaphor as the final word, but to rather see it transformed in Christ spiritually. So while we see visions of fighting and destruction, if what we take away from that is, okay, we've been placed in a culture where God has called us to fight, so we need to gather together, band together as Christians, single out all those who are against us and fight them. And maybe reading Zechariah, if we weren't reading too carefully, we might think, hmm, sounds to me like God is saying not only should we fight those unbelievers who are coming against us, but it wouldn't be a bad idea to burn all their stuff down. Maybe we should light stuff on fire and go out into their fields and consume it and fight fire with fire and that sort of thing. It's not unusual for people under siege, fearful people, to believe that the only way to overcome their enemy is to fight in a more ruthless way than those who are coming against them. The world is against the church, then the church needs to get really good at beating the world at its own game. A lot of people think that's the path of faithfulness. But over and over again, the lesson of Christ is that you cannot fight Christ's battles without using Christ's weapons. The Christ's enemies are over, only ever overcome the way that Christ overcomes them. It's not through mere destruction, but through restoration, recreation. And that's what we're called to do. And that's what you see here in this vision. There's a turn that it takes away from the idea of us as, as, let's say, violent champions in the fight, something that, that takes us more inward, turns us towards an attitude of repentance and mourning. See in that second section, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. One mourns for an only child. Weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. When you read those words with New Testament eyes, every line just jumps out at you. You see him whom they have pierced. We cannot help but think of Jesus. When you see the interesting way this is expressed, that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, things get really goosebumpy because now we're seeing, uh, as it were, a confusion over who's speaking. How is it possible that the God who speaks through the prophet can refer to himself as the one who is looked upon, and yet the one who is looked upon is him whom they have pierced? How is it possible for them to have pierced him, the one who made them, who formed their spirits? A mystery in Zechariah's days, but in the days of Jesus, it's plain. Because Jesus is God in the flesh. They will mourn for him. One mourns for an only child. We might say as an only begotten son. Weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Jesus Christ, who was indeed the firstborn and the firstfruits of the dead. That mourning that you see in this vision, when we think of it in its original context, of course, you just think mourning, like a, like a funeral. People are just mourning. And, and we get into the detail of all the various houses who are mourning, and they're mourning in isolation and seclusion, but they're mourning inwardly. So this isn't just like a collective 
feeling of guilt. It's individual. It's in the heart. It's something every family is touched by and affected by. But we see that mourning and we recognize in it again, repentance. A mourning for sin. A mourning for the death of Christ, which was necessitated by our sin. The Apostle John cites this passage of Zechariah. He does it twice. First time is where you would expect to find it. It's in John's Gospel in chapter 19 in his account of the Passion. Remember, Zechariah is the most quoted prophet in the Passion narratives of the Gospels. And in chapter 19, verse 37 of John's Gospel, we read, and again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. So he quotes Zechariah, and he's specifically talking about the moment in the crucifixion when the side of Jesus is pierced by a Roman soldier's spear, and, and out of the wound flows blood and water. When John recounts that, he quotes the prophecy of Zechariah and says it was fulfilled here in the crucifixion of Jesus. But he also quotes this in another place that's really interesting in the book of Revelation. Remember, we talked about how the book of Revelation owes an incredible debt to Zechariah's prophecy. That many images that don't make sense to you as you try to to piece through Revelation will make more sense if you're familiar with Zechariah. Well, at the very beginning of the book of Revelation in chapter 1, as the character of Jesus is introduced, so to speak, You read these words in verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Will wail. In other words, will mourn. So not only the idea of the piercing, but the idea of the mourning that follows, John cites both of those things at the beginning of the book of Revelation as Jesus is revealed in his full glory. So clearly, in the eyes of John, in the eyes of all of the authors of the New Testament, the one being spoken of in this vision is Jesus. The one whose death provokes this mourning is Jesus. But remember what's happening here, what's what's causing this mourning. We learn at the beginning that phrase, it is God saying, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. So there's a spirit of grace being poured out. There are pleas of mercy, but interestingly, they're being described as something God is pouring out, not something people are offering up to God. But God is giving them the grace that gives them the ability to plea for mercy. God is giving them the grace that breaks their hearts so that they might mourn at the death of the one who came to atone for their sins. Now, these words pouring out a spirit of grace remind you of Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the people of God. And what was the sign of that pouring out? What was the image that was given? It it appeared to be a tongue of flame. A flame above the people of God. The church of the New Testament was to be a flock of fire starters. To carry the flame into the world, delighted on fire, not a fire of destruction, a fire of purification and redemption. All the mourning that we see taking place here is mourning, you might think, at the foot of the cross. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning 
for Hadad Rimen in the plain of Megiddo. Oh, you hear that and you think, wow, that really resonates. If this is going to be as great as the morning for Hadad Rimen in the plain of Megiddo, that's a lot of mourning, as we all well know. Or maybe we don't. <laughs> because I don't know about you, but I read this and had no idea who Hadad Rimen was or, or what it is or whatever, and, and why there would have been mourning in the plain of Megiddo. Not a clue. So I did some research so that you don't have to, and this actually turns out to be quite fascinating, maybe the most fascinating thing you'll find here. Of course, with a lot of interpretation comes speculation, and when you speculate, you have to be careful. Like, we're not positive. We're not certain. We're, we're, we're drawing inferences. But one interpreter who I think has a good argument to make says that what's happening here in this phrase is something that happens a lot in prophecy where events are combined together and described as if they were one thing when actually there are two things or multiple things. We've already seen this in our text in the way that, that Jerusalem and the various like sieges uh, that have happened or are to come have been referred to. But what he says is you need to separate Hadad Remen and Megiddo in your mind. What it seems to be is, is the reference to deaths of kings, two kings in particular. You remember King Ahab and the death of King Ahab? King Ahab went to war with Jehoshaphat against the king of Syria. So the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom went to war together. But Ahab was clever. He didn't want to be killed in battle. So he encouraged Jehoshaphat, the king of the south, to ride out in his crown and his you know, kingly regalia. But he disguised himself as a common soldier so that he would not become a target for the enemy. But it just so happens he became a target for the enemy and he was killed. Years later, a good king, King Josiah, when the Egyptians were riding out to fight the Hittites, he got himself mixed up in that, and King Josiah, good king, was killed. And that battle took place in the plain of Megiddo. There was great mourning for him. What do these two events have in common? Well, here's what's interesting. What unites the death of these kings, there were kings who went into battle in disguise. Kings who were not visibly kings at all, but appeared to be mere common soldiers, kings who were killed in disguise, and only later revealed to be what they are. A king like Jesus, who came in the flesh, one of us, whose royalty was not apparent to those who looked upon him, but became apparent in his glorification. So that on that day, there shall be a fountain open for the house of David, for the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. That fountain opened up as this fountain that we sing about. We sing there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The victory in battle is the atonement. It's the victory of the cross, seemingly a defeat in which the king is vanquished and, and put to death. And yet, in that defeat, he wins victory. And all cleansing for sin flows from that victory on the cross. Very beginning of the Bible in Genesis 3.15, there is the first hint of the gospel proclaimed. That hint which John Calvin refers to as a feeble spark the kind of light that seems it will easily be overcome by the darkness. 
but it's not overcome. Instead, the light grows and it grows until finally on the day of Pentecost, we see the Spirit poured out and that flame marking all of the people of God as fire starters. The book of Hebrews, it all begins to make sense as the author of Hebrews quoting Deuteronomy 4.24 reminds us that our God is a consuming fire. That as the church spreads out and as it grows century by century, it's history. Those who chronicle it uh, describe it this way. F.F. Bruce, in his wonderful history of the ancient church, he titles that work, The Spreading Flame, as the flame of Christ is carried farther and farther, not a flame of destruction, but a flame of purification, flame of glory. The charge to us as God's people is to be fire starters, as we've been called to be. We should be a flock of fire starters. We have to be on fire, not, not emotionally. I'm not saying be excited. I'm saying be on fire in the sense of believing in the gospel and carrying it, carrying the fire of his word within us, carrying his truth. And we have to bring that fire into the field where it can catch light, where that fire can spread. Samson's fire destroyed the fields, but Jesus' fire purifies and brings in the harvest. He's called us to be his fire starters. So let's do it. Let's carry his fire into these fields. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.